This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Welcome to Tabletop Genesis. I am Mike Lord, your host for today, and we are going to be talking about Invisible Touch. So again, my name is Mike Lord, and the rest of the Tabletop is here, so let's have them introduce themselves. Hello, everybody. I'm Ellie Nottingham. This is Simon Godfrey. This is Stacey Godfrey. And Tom Roche. Excellent. So, Simon, let's hear about Wikipedia and Invisible Touch. Okay, uh, Invisible Touch is the 13th studio album from the English rock band Genesis, released on June the 9th, 1986, on Charisma Virgin labels in the United Kingdom and Atlantic Records in the United States. After a break in group activity in 1984 for each member to continue with their solo projects, Invisible Touch was recorded following the commercial success of Phil Collins' third solo album, No Jacket Required, and its supporting tour, which had increased his popularity as a solo artist. The album was written entirely through group improvisations. No material developed prior to the recording was used. Electronic drums and synthesizers were used extensively. (laughs) Invisible Touch remains the best-selling studio release from Genesis with over 6 million copies sold in the US alone. That's pretty damn good. It became the band's fourth consecutive album to top the UK charts and peaked at number three in the US. It spawned five top five singles on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart, Invisible Touch, Throwing It All Away, Land of Confusion, In Too Deep, and Tonight, 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 with Invisible Touch reaching the top spot, the only Genesis single ever to do so. The album received mixed reviews upon its release, and retrospectively, several reviews, both positive and negative, have observed its similarity to Colin's solo career. Genesis toured Invisible Touch from 1986 to 1987, which ended with a record four sold-out shows at Wembley Stadium. The album was reissued with a new stereo 5.1 surround mix in 2007. So before we start talking about this album and the tracks, I feel like I need to preface all the comments I'm about to make in this podcast um, because this album is very very special to me in fact this album is not just a special album for me from as a Genesis fan and as part of their catalog of work it is a very special album in all albums ever created this was my gateway this was my first Genesis album I got it as a birthday present when I turned seven And it's from this album that this was the bar being set for me musically. Okay, I was seven years old. The bar wasn't that high then. (laughs) But this was such an important album in my life. So this album, in other words, transcends just being a good listening experience for me. There's so much emotion and nostalgia Actually, you know, human connections tied up in this album. Because if it weren't for this album, I would not be at this table with right. these great people. I wouldn't have met so many other great f- other fans out there. And this really has impacted my life. So another thing about this album was that, again, I was very young. Mm-hmm. I was extremely shy and very introverted. 
I've gotten a little better with the shyness, <laughs> to be honest, um, but I'm still pretty much an introverted person. And so when you're an introverted person, you're a shy person, the outside world, you don't really connect with it at all. You know, you stay inside yourself. And this album was one of the very, very few things from the outside world that I connected with as a young child. And it's, you know, I really hold that very close to me. And so I, to say I put this album on a pedestal is the <laughs> understatement of... <laughs> the pedestal's not big enough yes, to put it absolutely, on, right? absolutely, of my life. And um, so please bear that in mind as you hear my comments on the album. I'm, I perceive this album through a lens that I think is a lot different than other people. I try to be as objective as possible, but the, like I said, that connection to it just kicks in and sometimes overrides it. So, and you can read more about how the, the, I was into this album connected to it on our website because it's part of my little bio. But yeah, this is a pretty, pretty cool album. In other words, <laughs> in other words ladies and gentlemen, be prepared for a bit of a gush. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now you had a question for us? Oh, right. So going around the table, do you have an album like that? In Genesis? No, it's just in general. In general. Because, you know, to me, it doesn't matter if it's Genesis or what. This is the album, sure. you know? Yeah. For me, it was Genesis Shapes. Shapes the album okay. that introduced me to the band. And uh, so that, that's special to me. I, have, I feel more connection to that album than, any, than with any other. I'd have to say for, for this album in particular, I, I do agree with you a lot that it, it holds a special place. And I know we all kind of felt like this need to offer a disclaimer at the beginning of the show that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be disagreeing with some of our statements. But I think just trying to lay the groundwork of where we're coming from with this album, as you did, this was my first real introduction to the band. And I think, yes, and now that going, it introduced me to the old older catalog. I went back and experienced the whole Genesis catalog and fell in love with everything. If it weren't for this album, that might not have happened. So in comparison to some of the older 70s work, obviously I, I can see where the, the criticism comes in for people who grew up with that, with the older Genesis, Peter Gabriel, and all of a sudden now they've got a pop number one single in the U.S. I can see how that would kind of really rub longtime fans the wrong way. But for a lot of us, it was the gateway into Genesis, and it just it meant the world to us because it, it will always be that album that started us down the path to 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 full time Genesis fandom. And as as Stacy said, I probably wouldn't know a lot of the people around this table if it weren't. For this album being the springing point for me you know if if uh stacy were talking about kind of what album and i had to think about this because i i i was i tend to think of songs not albums mm -hmm. but but i would say and, I, and i'll go back to i think a similar situation of yours it's like the first rock album i ever bought um was yes is 90125 again you know an, an album that is often seen as divisive within the fan base um so I understand that, you know, as much as some people love it or hate it or whatever, it's like, and there are songs on that album, for example, that I don't think are as good as other songs, but it's a great album. And so I can't really criticize it. Um, Invisible Touch was either the second or third CD I ever bought. Or actually, it might have been given to me, but I was happy I would have bought it anyway. Um, I will say the first one was selling England by the pound. But yeah, I think that... You know, my experience with Invisible Touch was maybe less so as defining as, as yours, but I think it was also, it was the first new album of theirs I was getting into. 
that's what was important for me for this was that it got me into music in general, which got me into a world where I'm sitting here at this table today. Um, I always felt that this was creatively a low point in their career. Commercially, yes, they got it absolutely right. Were they going in the direction they wanted to go? Of course they did. Do I support them in that? Of course I do. But am I entitled to my own opinion? Of Of course I am. But was there an album that, to Stacey's question, that kind of, that is a complete album for you? Peter Gabriel 3. All right. Yeah, you would defend as if it was your own child, you know. Right. There might be some bad things they do, and they might not be perfect, but they're... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Nobody's cool. perfect, but it, it, you know, there's a, that connection to it. All right, on the nobody's perfect, I guess we'll get into it. We'll right? get into Mike <laughs> to the Mechanics, nobody's perfect. Uh, oh, no, wait, Ron album. We will do Genesis, Invisible Touch. first song I heard from the album and it's funny when I I heard it on the radio Mm -hmm. it's got tons of radio play I know in the Philadelphia area Um, I thought it was a Phil Collins song Mm -hmm. and I thought it was called Busy Ball Touch (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was kind of strange I think I saw a movie of that title (laughs) (laughs) and I went with it I remember so I didn't have the the single was released prior to the album being released here um, or maybe it was probably around the same time. But it was a little before. I maybe first heard this before I actually got the album. Right. And I remember, I'm sure it's like every radio, popular uh, music radio station in the country. Once there's a good hit on it, mm. they'll play it every hour. Yep. So I remember I used to sit in my parents' driveway with my little boom box. It was like a one speaker with a cassette recorder attached because I had the best reception mm-hmm. um, anywhere, and I would just wait for Eagle 106 to play it on the radio, and I filled up a blank tape, mm-hmm. one sides one and two, with this song. I was obsessed. <laughs> and How old were you? I was six or seven. Well, there we are. Then. Yeah. You know, not, not much has changed. I still nice. sit in the driveway and right. record songs I like off the radio. <laughs> um, and I'm a, so that's when my mom, I think she was like, my child is strange, but mm-hmm. I will indulge her and get her the album for her birthday. So, um, but I just love the song. I love the video. I thought oh, yeah. they were so funny. They were and they were, Yeah, the video helped great. a lot with this song. Absolutely. And so this is a great song. I remember when they played it live in 2007 when I finally got to see them live. There was maybe a tear or two. Um, got a little bit emotional. But yeah, I think it's a great, it's just, as Phil always says, it's a great pop song. The video for me was one of those, like you said, they looked like they were having so much fun and having known Phil from his solo success, like I didn't know there were these other guys, I didn't know there was this other band and all of a sudden I'm seeing this video which was all over the place. 
where he's having this bl- the bl- blast with these two other guys. I'm like, I know this song. I, I hear it on the radio all the time. Let me get into the Genesis. Let me see what this is about. For those who kind of weren't really around 86, 87, who might be the younger set, Genesis was everywhere in 86, 87. You could not go anywhere without hearing a song on the radio or seeing a video. It, it can't be understated how huge they were in that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for a lot of the older fans, as Mike has said, once the band that you hold dear to your heart as the cult favorite and just you and your select group of friends know about them, once they become huge in pop culture, you kind of lose that. It kind of slips out of your hands mm-hmm. and now is all for public consumption. And, and I think that rubbed a lot of the old time fans wrong wrong way because not only were now this band becoming so popular, it was becoming the stuff that they were becoming popular with was not the stuff that the old fans like. So it's like all these people are like, oh, I love that song, Invisible Touch. Everyone, all the old fans are like, no, wait, wait, they, they did all this other stuff. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. So it was almost, I think I, I can see where their, you know, distaste for the new sound that was coming out because they had spent decades loving this old sound. And here it was, their band finally gets a chance in the spotlight and they're not doing the music that they grew up loving. So I think I can see why they don't hold this album in a, in a pedestal that some of us do. Yeah, I find that, you know, I think this is a great opener. You know, it's, it's fun. It has a lot of energy. It's deceptively happy. Uh, I think if you actually listen to the words, it's not a happy song, uh, or it can be interpreted, I would say, as not a happy song, especially in the third verse where it's, you know, and she will mess up your life, but you'll love her just the same. And, you know, it's a lot of, you know, it's not every breath you take kind of people thinking that's a happy song and that it's really not. Uh, But it certainly is not a... You know, just a, oh, she has invisible touch. It's great and everything. It's a cool little song that has more depth than it's given credit for. Absolutely. I think this is one of their best arranged songs on the mm-hmm. album and overall in their career. I mean, the yeah. arrangement's so tight. Yeah. If you just listen to the song and then focus on one instrument yeah. at like at any point, you can see they're all over the place. This is really sophisticated really cool. stuff for a simple pop song. Yeah, the bass line is really cool. It fits yeah. the song. I like the little kind of instrumental break in the middle of it you know it's there's a lot of good stuff in there it's a it's a perfect pop song which i think i think is perfectly written as a pop song mm-hmm. and i think that also is what the detractors kind of say about it well it's a pop song well yes this was the moment that genesis was was in in 1986 this yeah. was the stuff they were doing and for a band doing what they were doing they were really good at it right. as i kind of disagree with you as an opener when you look at Genesis catalog, almost every first song mm-hmm. had this really interesting buildup, whether it was Watch for the Skies or Dancing with the Moonlit Night, uh, Dance on a Volcano, even up through Mama. Mm-hmm. And then Invisible Touch starts with a straight out pop song. Like there's no kind of like, here's the mood we're going to give you for the whole album. It's just like, boom, pop song. And I think that also rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way. I think if they had really wanted to continue with that great first song buildup, they probably would have used Feeding the Fire as the opener. That would be a great opener to this album. Then maybe go into Invisible Touch and, and do the rest of it. There you go. I, I also, I love the song, of course. It's a happy and fun song, you know. And um, it was all over the radio in Argentina as well, in, in Buenos Aires, at least, where I was living around the radio stations. They would play songs from this album all the time. So mm-hmm. because after No Jagged Wired, you know, Phil Collins mm-hmm. became even more well-known and popular. So... And uh, yeah, it's a fun song. I like it, and uh, I think it's a it's an okay opener for the album. It's uh, you know it's what the album is about. You know, 
different sound effects and machine, you know, uh, drums and stuff, synthesizers. So it was the mid eighties. <laughs> it was an eighties album. Yeah. Yeah. Simon, let's hear your bollocks take <laughs> or take on the bollocks. How much do you love this song? It's well, it was. It's an interesting thing that uh, we had a conversation a little while back with regards Spot the Pigeon, right? And about uh, the opening track, Bash of the Day, mm-hmm. being a very poppy kind of introduction, and you said that it wouldn't be out of place on something like Invisible Touch, right? And uh, and I think that there is a, a, an element of that match of the day that opens up with uh, with invisible touch, and especially that middle section, which is basically sort of the sequences as it builds and builds yeah. and builds and builds. There's a there there is some elements of, uh, of of commonality to it, but by and large, it's bollocks. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. It was a number one bollocks. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's you know it's funny because the people who are you know the longtime fans of Genesis that this album just doesn't work for them like i get that you know it's like i don't you know coming from that perspective i don't disagree with it but i think for me you know growing up when i did in the 80s and you know this being the album that hit when i was a sophomore in high school uh it and again genesis being the first rock concert i went to at the end of this tour you know this album you know is immune from certain critiques uh, not all of them, because we'll be talking about some of them later on as we go through the album. But it's, but I think that it's overall. I look at it as just that it's it's music of it of its time from a band that I like. It doesn't have any obscure tracks, so that's why mm. many people don't like them. I mean, it has Domino, which is a long song. Right. Um, but it's been one, but it's been played live since it was released. Right. So yeah, it's that's, a great live song. Yeah. So cool. Well, shall we move on to tonight, tonight, tonight? Oddest thing after listening to that, we're all. I look around the table, we're all drinking Michelob. It's really <laughs> weird. I think one of the associations I think I still have with this song is the Michelob commercials, which were everywhere because they were the tour sponsor, right? For the Invisible Touch tour, yeah, they used the, the song in their commercials. My friend used to sing whenever the song called on the radio, he'd go, Oh, 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 
Michelob. <laughs> Every time I mentioned Genesis, that's all he would sing. Because it was. Like, a lot, of pe- a lot of my friends who didn't know Genesis, which was pretty much all, all two of them. Um, <laughs> they, they, but they knew, they knew the song from the Michelob commercial. So, yeah, that's, that's how people knew Genesis back in the 80s. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I never associated the music that was kind of like in those ads with the ads long term. Like, it just never stayed with me that way. So maybe that's just how I deal with advertising or whatever. I think it, this is kind of a it's it's kind of a cool song. No, it's uh, again, one of the longest on the album, perhaps. Second longest. Second yeah, is Domino a little bit longer? Little so, um, but yeah, I think that you know it has the best part on the album when it comes out of that instrumental bit in the middle with you keep telling me everything. Fantastic version. Fan, the whole you know end of that song from that point onwards can again to me do no wrong. And I always kind of thought this song was a little bit like I I know what I like you know with kind of the way the keyboards are. It's taking a kind of phrase like that, a very kind of couple note phrase and using that as the basis of the song and I thought that was you know not an obvious homage in any way or a reference but it was just a a similar technique that they've used so I thought it was great I love this song can I just uh, I want to quote something from the Wikipedia page about tonight 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 he said uh, Rutherford recalled the basis of tonight 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 being developed by Banks improvising sound over a rhythm Mm -hmm. played by Collins and himself Similar to that of Invisible Touch, Collins then came out with the word monkey, leading to its uh, working title being Monkey Zulu. (laughs) With the rest of the song lyrics being written around that phrase, Rutherford said the song was more of the old-style Genesis that covers a lot of ground musically. And I, I think they're right. Actually, yeah. it does cover a lot of yeah. a, a lot of musical ground in that, but in a, in a new style. I think, right. for me, mm-hmm. one of the jarring things about uh, Invisible Touch is not necessarily the pop arrangements, but it's very, very heavily reliant on um, instruments that date mm, it to yeah. the period, which is the, for example, the electronic drums. Right. And uh, and I think you know it, it sounded very contemporary at the time, but as, as is often the way, yeah. it, that's uh, that's one of the most dated albums in my sure. opinion now. Yeah, you kind of think like, oh, we'll use these tools that have just come out and that they're new and everything. But if those tools don't have a life to them, or if they get passe very quickly, yeah, it definitely dates it that way. I suppose you could look at it from yeah. the uh, an alternative, or you can flip that on its head, which is say. It was a snapshot of its time, much right. like a family sure. photo. Right. It's one of those tunes where, you know, I, I like it start to finish and I'll listen to it on an album. But when they did the version of it live in 92 and subsequent tours, when they kind of sh- shortened it. Yes. And also there's a radio edit of it. Oh, I hate it? that edit. Oh, it hurts. That, that- it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> That I actually don't mind because I figure what they, they they were able get to get done in five minutes, which I think they could have gotten and done in five minutes. Yet on the album, I, I know it's spread out for some atmosphere, and they yeah. got that middle instrumental, which I do like when I listen to. I don't skip over that song ever, but I don't mind hearing the shorter version. If it's on the radio, they shouldn't do that. That's wrong. But when Genesis does the shorter version in concert, which leads into Invisible Touch, that I have no problem with. I'm like, okay, you gave me the four minutes of tonight 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 that i needed 
go into Invisible Touch. See, I kind of wish that if they did that as a medley, that they would keep the best part of the song in the medley, which is coming out of that instrumental bit. You know, you need that that, that yeah, bit that's to, that, that's the to get the payoff the to get yeah. the payoff at the end, which is one of the best you know moments of their of the of they ever put on an album. I love it absolutely. I also love the video for this song. Um, especially the part with that big buildup when Phil comes back with the vocals and he runs up against the fence and he's so short, <laughs> his face is cut off from it. <laughs> this, is, this might be an opportune moment to sort of like talk about the fact that the, the, the video was, was based more or less on some of the shots from the film Blade Runner. Sure, yeah, it's very kind of you know, dark and, you know... Well, it was shot at the Bradbury, which is exactly oh, the same it? place yeah. that Blade Runner was shot okay. at with the uh, with the lift going. And also the shot where uh, he goes up against the chain link fence. Mm-hmm. That's also a shot that that completely mimics uh, a yeah. scene in Blade Runner as well. I saw the movie for the first time, when was it, a couple months ago? Yeah. And all the scenes from that place, I was just singing, tonight, 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 much was... to Simon's disgust, <laughs> of course. <laughs> the Bradbury, I think, was the go-to location for any 80s thing that wanted yes. to be dark and moody. I think Hart also did a video in oh, that building. Really? I think, uh, I don't know which one it was, someone will tell us but I went and visited there when I lived in LA I went to the Bradbury building because of the Tonight 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 Tonight, film it was in broad daylight it does not look as dark (laughs) (laughs) there were people in ties and suits going in at offices it was no one drinking Michelob it was really (laughs) so I just want to say that yeah I like the song but I have mixed feelings I really love the instrumental bit in the middle that that I really like but I'm not thrilled by the by the piece or anything. It's uh, it's it's okay. It's like yeah. It was number three in the U.S. and number eighteen in the U.K. chart. Wow, okay. And it was all over the radio again in my country. So it's all right. Yeah, this was played a lot. That damn edit was played a lot. <laughs> but at least the edit had your favorite part in it. Yeah, that's true. But it's just so jarring. Yeah, you need that build up in the middle to really make it work. Otherwise, it's just kind of going from the chorus into... And there's... If you don't know the long version, maybe it sounds okay, but I can't imagine that it does. I guess it's like it's, I guess it's like when I hear a radio station play Home by the Sea and they don't follow it with sure. Second Home by the right. Sea. I'm like, Ugh. you you listen to radio stations actually play that song? <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm gonna come live in your neighborhood. <laughs> so, excellent. Well, let's jump into Land of Confusion.
so it's Mike Rutherford's protest song, as he said in interviews. And and I, I, I again, I like this song. I think the album version is a little bit too stiff, but I think live it really has has found its feet. So I think it's a really cool song in that respect. Yeah, me too. The, the, the live version in any concert, if you see the, them live playing that, that this this piece, it's quite amazing. More than the studio version, the live version. Yeah, is, but more yeah. powerful. Mm-hmm. Like, I agree, you know, yeah. I think so much of the material off this album translate much better live. Sure. And I think that this is, you know, it's one of these songs that I often think, and, you know, we've talked about demo versions and things like this before, but, you know, I would love to hear kind of the jams that this song came out of because sometimes I think, like, well, how do you come up with these pieces, you know, separately and then figure out which parts go together and, you know, how does how does that actually work? And for me, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So, and this is one of those songs where I'd be like, okay, how did you decide that, you know, that middle kind of slower part where, you know, before it goes into the instrumental break into the third verse, like, how do you decide, oh, that goes in with this part of the song, this kind of more driving verses and, you know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by those things. So I would like to hear more of that stuff. It's like the little details that they added, which is, I always listen to it, and I hear this every time I hear the track. The first verse mm-hmm. goes by like it mm-hmm. normally would. The second verse has a shh <laughs> with oh, one right. clap. Yeah. When you get to the last verse, it's two claps. Shh. Okay. So they had they add that shh. Yeah. So listen to that next time you hear that. It's very cool. It's arrangement. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Hey, there's some tight arrangement there on this album. And, and I I love the lyrics of this. This is one of, the, I think, Mike's best lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, he's come a long way since your own special way, <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, as a seven-year-old, this was my favorite track. Uh, this My favorite track on this album changes, like, weekly. Um, <laughs> sure. But I remember really, like, fast-forwarding sometimes, just to the song. Yes, yeah, so sorry, my cassette to the song. I just, I thought it was great. I could dance to it. Although with that being said, I remember, didn't they do like a, a dance remix of this song oh, yeah, or a 12 inch? Yeah, oh, it was atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> they all, they have their, their 80s charm to I them. know, it was so bad. Yeah. I was like, don't try to be <laughs> this. But there was one for Invisible Touch. There was That's one right. for this yeah. and for Tonight, 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 right. I think. So none for In Too Deep. Um, but that's uh, yeah. going back to the lyrics. I, I, again, I'm quoting from uh, from Wiki here. He said the lyrics to "Lang the Confusion" were written by Rutherford. He was struck down with the flu when it was mm-hmm. time for Collins to record the the song's vocals. He recalls Collins came over to my house and he sat on my bed like a secretary. I was in a kind of delirious state with a very high temperature and I dictated the song to him. And I remember thinking. I think I told him the right thing. <laughs> was it all rubbish or was it any good? Right. That's, sometimes when you're in that state, you don't really know. I'm just amazed that he could do it from memory that way. So. An amazing video as well. Really yeah. good video, actually. One of the better videos that they did with the spitting image puppets and yeah. stuff. Which was which weren't big over here. I think that was no. America's first introduction to spitting image puppets. Oh, really? yeah, we had no clue. Yeah. Before. It was just so for us, puppets. it was like, wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Creepy puppets. It works really well, actually. Yeah. I really like that. And as, to- as Tony Banks says, it's his favorite video because they didn't have to do anything for it. So they didn't have to be in it. <laughs> because I think Spitting Image would make fun of Phil. Would actually, they would actually have already a Phil puppet. To I've never seen their shows or anything, but I read you know, here and there. 
So Genesis thought, well, let's let's call them and you know work together in this video for a song, you know, and, you know, and show them that we can you know accept that make it, make fun of us yeah, and stuff. Right. We are good with that. We're cool, no problem. I think it's an indicator of exactly the the increasing nature of the fame that they were enjoying. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the UK, if you had a puppet on Spitting Image. You'd arrived. You wow. were you okay. were part of the national consciousness. Okay. I think in the U.S. that was, if they parodied you on Saturday Night Live, you had made it. That was kind of like right. our equivalent yeah. to that. Or Weird Al Yankovic. Weird, if you, yeah, like if you did your song. In the music world that way. So, yeah. I'm kind of. I haven't heard the word bollocks from Simon in a while. Yeah, kinda so get, I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> I thought there'd be a lot more. Uh, I think this is only mildly. All right, mildly bollocks. It's half bollocks right there. I, this so. is not a bad. This is. I mean, this is as far as I'm concerned. You know, when it comes to sort of like their writing of of, of pop tunes, I think this has a lot of character and a lot sure. of get up and go for it. All right, really. good. So that's a good a good place to move on to. Into deep. Too deep, the ballad on the album. What do you think? I think it's boring. I don't like it. <laughs> I like it. Of course, I like it. But I think it's one of their. It's a very pretty top line melody. I like the melody. I actually decided on this re-listen for this podcast that this is not my my least favorite song on the album. And people may be surprised by my least favorite song but this is not it and i actually you know for being a ballad i was like oh it's it's okay i think that it's i think like you said stacy the melody to it is a lot better than i gave it credit for initially i think the initially i was hearing it as it's kind of a syrupy ballad it's it's the closest on this album that i think when people say it sounds like a phil collins album that I think that I can actually give credence to that. In one yeah, that's probably the, the one song that does sound probably more like a Phil song because you don't have Tony's like chords going right. through this. And that's what makes this, you know, a Genesis album. Like any Genesis album, it's Tony's chords. Right. And so that's why I think it, and it's a ballad. Mm -hmm. Phil's singing it. Of course, it's it right. sounds more like that. But... I happen to also be a huge Phil Collins fan. Right. Surprise, surprise. And uh, so okay. I'm happy with that. I mean, I don't really like ballads to begin with, sure. in general, with music. But um, Phil could sing 
and he bowed to me any day. There's there's a gr- there's a great interview that I got actually on album first, one of these picture discs. It's mm-hmm. with Mike and Tony from the single had been released for Invisible Touch in the U.S. and the U.K., but I think the album had either just come out or it was going to come out or it was going to come out in the next week or so. And it's an hour long interview in there, but and it's kind of like these guys talking about stuff on the cusp of their biggest album. And, you know, they, there's actually this really funny moment in, in the middle of it where Phil actually says he talks about ballads. And he's like, he's like, well, you know, ballads in America, I kind of think of them, they're almost like a cheap shot because you know that they do well. And Tony goes, this is a man with experience with ballads in America. <laughs> <laughs> and they both laugh about it because they both know it's true. And right, it's, right. it is one of those things where I think that, you know, it, it, like In Too Deep is the album's ballad. And it's, it actually, I think, was not, I mean, it, it didn't feel like it was the biggest hit on the album to me, although it went top five or whatever. But it was definitely, you know, it was that track that was, oh, it's it's the ballad on the album, and I'm okay with that now at this time when it's 29 years past when this album came out, and I've accepted that, and I'm fine with it. It's a good song. I do feel like it's, to me, it's the Phil Collins song on that album, and it, it is one that I usually skip when I listen to this album, I'll just go from Land of Confusion to right to anything she does. The one the one thing I do, I, I do enjoy the melody. I think it's good melody, but it's just one that doesn't grab me, So, which is why I skip it. Yeah. The, the chorus could be better. The instrumental section, it reminds me of the in- instrumental section from Your Own Special Way. I was just going to say that. <laughs> but a thousand times better. Of like, course. if they had, it's like what, what they were striving for, for okay. Your Own Special Way, but they didn't quite get in a big way. They finally nailed it with the instrumental right. section of In Too Deep. That's an interesting way of putting it. Truly progressing as a progressive <laughs> rock band. <laughs> Sorry, this is what this is progressive, just because it yeah, yeah. doesn't as, sound as like as anything else go. they've done before. I mean, as ballads go, it's it's you know it's not a bad ballad. I personally think that Genesis have done better ballads in their time. I mean, sure. you could say Taking It All Too Hard, actually, mm. from the pri- previous mm, album, yes. is probably a better ballad than I this agree, one. Yes. Has anybody seen that movie Mona Lisa that it was used in? Did they do a no. slightly different version of it? That's what oh, I heard. Yeah. That, like they kind of uh-huh. changed it up a little bit. It was used in that uh, Bob Hoskins film, yeah. Mona Lisa. I've not seen the movie, but I know it was used. It might have been just an early an edit of it or something, I, or maybe it was an earlier version. Maybe we can but... find a clip and put it on the website. Yeah. All right. There you go. Or somebody can send it to us. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to anything she does.
anything she does, I think it's 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 the it's the in some ways an obvious single on the album that was not a single because by this point they had five top five singles in the U.S. ones in the U in the U.K. that I'm sure were were uh, maybe not as big but were big over in the U.K. throughout Europe and other places. And I think it was just more like, you know, we can't put out another single. Because and yet they made it. a video of it. Yes. Yeah, I want to ask, so was Benny Hill known here in the U.S.? Because in Argentina, we I used to watch Benny Hill translated into Spanish, obviously. So I, mm-hmm. I wonder if here in the U.S. Yeah, if he was on TV, kind of on the, on the, on the not the network channels, but on the, on the other channels. Channel 9 here for us. Yeah, yeah, in New Jersey, it was Channel 9. And it was, you either liked... Benny Hill or Monty Python, and Monty Python was for the smart people, and Benny Hill was not. Was for people like me. I love Benny Hill. I watch Benny Hill over Monty Python. There's only so much yattity sax I can take, and that's. I'm not kidding you now. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, obviously, of our listeners in England rolling their eyes at this point. Yes, I'm very. I'm talking about my my ugly American interpretation of this. No, it's more to the fact. It's more to Benny Hill than it is to Monty Python. Yeah, my 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 dad watched Benny Hill and I would watch, he would let me watch it with him and right. just watching him laugh and me watch watch it with him like I would have, also have to take Benny Hill over Monty Python oh my god, oh my god. he gets a bad rap but that's for another podcast entirely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this could be a whole other conversation here about comedy and Benny Hill so but and I and I don't want to make it sound like I dislike Benny Hill I thought that he was used in the video was great but that video was shown before the concert started in the U.S. because they're kind of walking off on stage at the end. Yeah, they did exactly so, the same at the Wembley shows as well. So it was a way to represent that song in the yes, set, so to speak, since because they, they play played everything else yeah. from that And album. I wonder if it was also just that when they, they, maybe they filmed a video thinking, oh, you know, maybe it will be a single because Tonight, Tonight, Tonight will never be a single. That's nine minutes long, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's to me, it's the best song about masturbation on the album. <laughs> yeah, well, interestingly enough, apparently, uh, Tony Banks gained inspiration for anything she done from pictures of scantily clad women the band yeah. would cut out and place on the wall of the recording of studio. Yeah. Yeah. Unreconstituted yeah. men there. Yeah, you know? yeah. He wants to cover himself, so yeah. he is, uh, yeah, it's about the pictures. Oh, well, Rock has, has a long history from Pictures of Lily by The Who mm-hmm. up to Anything She Does by Genesis, <laughs> which are the two I can name, that are about, you know... <laughs> masturbation and about porn and about oh I mean pictures of Lily it's oh here take these pictures and go figure out what life is all about <laughs> and this is about you know a, a guy being kind of daydreaming about the girls on in the pinups and really it's just you know they'll never if, if know, there are any kids attention. listening they might want to leave the room yeah. so. too late <laughs> do, you, do you know the other 80s song it's not Genesis. That's about masturbation. Uh, Cindy Lauper. Yes, Shiva. We were too quick to answer that. Yeah, uh, a little too much. That was the talk of high school back yes. when we were in high school. That was, it's about masturbation. So same with same with turning Japanese. So yeah, that was another one. That was your first record. Shiva was my first record ever that wasn't given to me from my parents' collection. Oh, okay. That was the first one that was yeah. It went okay. Shiva, then Madonna's. Um, Lucky star, not like a virgin. That would have, I, I would have to have a conversation with my parents if that right, was the way. Okay. She bop, uh, lucky star, and then 
Genesis Invisible Touch. Right. Interestingly <laughs> enough, my new single, I'm Having a Wank, is, uh, <laughs> is going to be released later on this month. That's right. <laughs> well, this is, to get back to anything she does. I'm like about music. I actually think, you know, this is, I, I really, I've always liked this song. You know, it's, it's one of those ones that, you know, it's, it's a fun song. It's before the kind of epic slab of music that is Domino. It's kind of a nice, lighthearted type of thing. It's Domino's uh, Horizons. How about I'll put it that way? Wow. And, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, maybe that's a stretch. Yeah, I know. That's some esoteric I'm, thinking I'm, you're doing. I'm trying to make everybody hate me out there. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I'm hating uh, you. So, like, I'm right by you. So Mike right. Lord just equated Horizons with anything she does. There you go. Just want so, everybody to know that. Yes. Mike Lord. Mike Lord. It was an analogy. An analogy I was making but but I, and on the remix there's actually a little bit of extra music at the end it stretches yes. the outro out yeah. by maybe 15 seconds or so it doesn't change the world but i think it's it when I, when you first listen to it if you're familiar with the original you go oh this is going on longer and phil's going ah a little bit more than i would have thought so i didn't uh my I love this song too. I love the video because of Benny Hill. I love the song. The lyrics are kind of racy. You would not believe what you've had to do. In other yeah. words, in people's minds and imaginations, what she's been put through. Yeah. Uh, and life goes on around you and all because of you. In other words, people are able to get it up and have sex and procreate because of her. <laughs> so it's like, these are Tony's lyrics, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My we'll never let it be said he doesn't have a sense of humor. As well. <laughs> it's actually kind of a, it's both wistful for what what people think can't be but also for the situation that these these pinups are in too so oh, this, pin-ups. yeah <laughs> could this aching be love now it's no it's blue, blue balls, balls. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, here's one beef i do have with the song Ooh, if, if, get your beef out here's my beef here. if you're going to go to the pains of creating a synth sound which sounds so much yes, like horns, even to that. the even to the point where in your video you're playing horns. Just get some horns. horns. <laughs> That's my one complaint yeah. of the entire album yeah. overall. If I could change one thing, they would I would have loved to have heard a real horn section on this on this track. Sure. I said I was um, gonna make it so close. Just get the I real know. thing. But you know, it was Tony who said. I think I've I've read in the interview. He said, "Well, we already had horns. We don't want to repeat that." You know, they had the horns on Abacab, yeah. and uh, he's like, pretty much. And I can imagine him saying this. Uh, probably, uh, I can do it better, or I can do it just right. as good. Right. Well, because and it's they wrote it, so they figured, "Hey, we'll do it." I can do it better with my fingers, which was the whole point of the song, anyway. On that note, on that disgusting, horrible note, <laughs> let's move on to Domino.
So Domino, second best masturbation song on the album? No. <laughs> no, this is this is again, you know, the classic song that, you know, has was an album track, was never a single, although I think there is I have a three inch single for this that would came out with the Visible Touch Live di- videotape that's just of um Actually, I think it's of the live version. It might not even be the studio version. And I think there might have been a single of this maybe in France or something, but of the first half of it. But I, I, this is a song on the album that I think I've heard this live so many different ways that, or so many different times that the live version supersedes the album version for me. Absolutely. My definitive live version of this is The Way We Walk. Oh, yeah, sure. That's my favorite live version of this track. This actually brings me around to um, something which I'd like to sort of discuss with you guys, which is I have a personal theory about um, about Genesis and about the fact that they are a very different beast in the studio mm-hmm. than they are to live. When I saw them play at Wembley, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that really hit home to me, I was being very, very snooty and snobby about <laughs> Invisible Touch, about it was like not a very good album and stuff. Um, but the thing is that when you get the band plus Daryl and Chester on stage, that's still the 70s um, uh, genesis. It, that translates when they start doing things like Domino. Domino was, is a very different beast live. When you see them play that live, it's got real balls. I think it's one of those songs that has that kind of slow build in the beginning, this kind of, you know, first half of the track that's, you know, the in the glow of the night piece. And then it builds to this kind of, you know, not this very intense part with, you know, the blood on the windows and, you know, this different stage ways they present that. Um, and then, the, you know, you, you gotta go domino piece where it's a way of getting the crowd involved with it. You know, they would really kind of stretch that part out. Uh, live and I thought that it, it's it's one of those tracks that you know in 2007 I was kind of like oh, you know could we, could we live without Domino could you live without Home by the Sea um, I could have lived without Home by the Sea sometimes I convinced myself that Domino didn't have to be there and some other launder live track could have been in there but it really is it really is a key live track I, I get yeah. that you know it's I, I'm willing to argue against Home by the Sea but not for uh, Domino I'm kind of the opposite. I would like to see Home by the Sea kept in the set. And I could have probably done without Domino. And I remember we went and saw yeah. the first 2007 show in Canada yeah. together, the North American show. And I remember Tom saying, oh, I hope they do Home by the Sea. And I go, oh, they better do Domino. And we both, <laughs> well, no, and we were both, and then we were both saying, oh, my God, they pro- will probably either do one or the other. Right. And so There's it no was. There's no way they do both. Yeah. And then when we got both, it was like, yay. <laughs> Interestingly enough apparently again I'm, I'm referring to wiki on this mm-hmm. one um, apparently while they were actually jamming out the the last section of domino that's where they got the riff to invisible touch yep that is correct you know they were there there's a billboard magazine that I still have I should have brought it with me that 
you know, they talked about that they were jamming on this and might start doing a little bit of a different guitar riff that turns into the guitar riff for Invisible Touch. And I forget if, you know, if it was Mike or Tony who said, you know, Phil started mumbling something about Invisible Touch and, you know, and we worked on it and it became its own separate piece. And, you know, they, they, they would jam on this stuff. We were just, Ellie and I were just watching the, the Invisible Touch interviews that are on the, the reissues from 2007 and, Phil was the keeper of the tapes. And yeah, he was recording all the time. Yeah. So they could yeah. go back to them, to them and listen to the piece, bits, bits and pieces that they've been recording yeah. maybe for the whole day. And it was funny. He says he's, he's kind of like, he's like, Mike and Tony were a little more precious about this than I was. He's like, I would, he said that he would start maybe saying earlier than they were comfortable saying, oh, maybe we can put this bit and that bit together and start making a song notes. about it. And he, yeah. said, he said they were always a little bit less, they didn't want to commit early on. He's like, but I would sometimes push them into into doing that. He's like, and then then you get to that stage where you have to make the choices of you know what to go with each other. But yeah, like somebody actually wrote online one time, like I would have loved to have heard Invisible Touch when it was still a part of Domino, and I was like, no, no, it was never a part of Domino. It was while they were jamming or whatever. It was like, oh no, it was part of a song. They cut it out, and I'm like, no, that's not how they worked. And you know, explaining how Genesis worked and again I wasn't even there so you know but it's it's so clear from their own interviews that everything was jamming and everything was coming together in different ways that if you if you're not kind of thinking of I'm a musician and I write a song on guitar I write a song on keyboards and then bring it to a band that learns it it is a very different way of coming up with music. Yeah, and I, get, I could see how they sometimes it might be difficult for them to trust whether or not it's ready for this right. bit or another bit. Because right. it's a, it's a, I think they started writing this way with uh, the previous album. Right. So it's only well, with, with with Abacab also, and they've right. always written pieces this way, right. but the, then they started doing it all this way. Right. Uh, the part I also love with Domino on the album is, and it's even better live, is when, you know, Phil finishes singing and it goes into Tony's synth line, kind of, you know, anthemic synth, synth line, anthemic synth line, that ends that song and that they, again, jam out on live for a while. It's one of those pieces, it, it again, it raises the music for me and it kind of elevates it to, you know, a different plane and it really works live so I'm always very happy to hear lyrically it. though there is one of it's one of I think it's one of the most gauche lyrics that uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. there's a there's a moment in it I mean it's a bread bin moment basically which, one is this? which is the sheets of double, double glazing. glazing I always I, I allowed that for the for the Genesis poetry that it is I never <laughs> knew what that was until I was older because when yeah. I was little and I'm you know think sheets of double glazing I thought it was bed sheets right, that had right. glaze on them like yeah. a donut yeah <laughs> alright for those of us who don't what is a it's sheets of double glaze okay alright it's, uh, it's a type of window and I I didn't know that until years later and, and I was just he was subtly alluding to the uh, to the rising dominance of Microsoft uh, <laughs> <laughs> right well Ellie was doing some research about the lyrics of this and what did Tony say about this uh, he said, well, I mean, I read online and they said, oh, Tony will get inspired, you know, by the Lebanon war. And then he said nothing about it. He said, oh, it's, oh, yeah. it's about the consequences of your actions on other people's lives. And yeah. it's like a domino effect. Yeah. And isn't that what I... And I just thought it was more, you know, Peter was always more overtly political about these things. And I think that Genesis was more subvertly political yeah. about these things, if at all, you know, with One Man's Fool, off of Calling All Stations, and songs like yeah. this, that, you know, sometimes you want an artist to take an explicit stand, right. and sometimes they don't. 
and it's just how it is. Well, I think it's I think it's interesting. Like Land of Confusion and Domino both kind of have that kind of commentary yeah. throughout. So this is probably one of the more the most political albums this that's not really yeah song. Tony's protest song. It's funny. Um, I wonder. I bet this is the one track on the album though that the detractors might say is okay. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I was little and I was first listening to this album, I didn't really get Domino. I kind of sure. skipped it. I was like, yeah. this is long. I want to get to the yeah. part where I can dance, you know. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I started to go back into their earlier catalog mm-hmm. that I came back to Domino. And I was like, this is awesome. And, you know? and I think it's a song that really does improve live also. Oh, I, I think that it is one of those tracks that... On the album, I do think that it, it kind of fades out a little earlier than it should, and you know it's. It's got but, a kick ass ending live. Isn't oh it? yeah, exactly. And you can actually kind of hear on the boots that are out there the the ending kind of develop and Phil kind of figure out stuff to do with it. Uh, I'm sure they worked it out in rehearsal, but it's also seeing that continue as they're performing in front of people. So, and Domino was an early song in the set when it first when they first started the Invisible Touch song, tour. It was like the third or fourth song. Wow. Um, and much like on We Can't Dance, where Driving the Last Spike was the third or fourth song. Again, this big meaty slab of music early on in the in the uh, set, you know. But Domino was that for the Invisible Touch tour, and then it kind of migrated to the end of the set for. Uh, we can't dance where it was it was great live because phil was kind of up on a platform in front of the screens for the blood on the windows segment and it was a bit like where is he oh he's they sent him up there okay and it was this tiny little platform he was on that was really kind of a, a good visual for, yeah, for the live show part of the song. Yeah. i think that's what i didn't like about the, that part of the song in 2007 because i think that was sort of the game they had with yeah. fans and you know the '86 fine tour, Phil. Fine Phil, when he's singing mm-hmm. "Blood on the Windows," yeah. and in the 2007, he was off yeah, stage somewhere camera. with a camera, and we're all spending that time looking for him. We're like, uh, we can't find him. It was kind of a just a disappointment, but yeah, I, yeah. I lived through it. <laughs> yeah. But it also has one of my my favorite lyrics is uh, that Tony has is all the pointless, violent, silent tombs. It's a very yeah. fish Marillion error kind of lyric. Like right. that's very deep for for a Tony Banks lyric. And it was most of his, I think it was all his lyrics except for four words, which Phil wrote. I guess we know what those four words were. What? All of my life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he contributed right. those four words. He's like, well, I've got the perfect phrase right here. All of my life. There you go. Great. I, my favorite lyrics are the, now you never did see such a terrible thing as, we, as was seen last night on the TV. Maybe if we're lucky, they will show it again. Such a terrible thing to see. You know, I think it's it's just that culture of, oh, this is horrible. Move out of the way so I can see it. Better, yeah, that, that, whole, yeah, that whole that whole sort of culture of rubbernecking or yeah. something. Yeah, so, that's think, still relevant today. Uh, yeah, yeah, even more. Again, even more so. Prophetic, I would say this album was. And it's interesting that this, as Stacey was saying, this was probably because I, I kind of really don't count tonight, tonight, tonight. But this was the the casual fans' first introduction to a heavier, meatier song mm-hmm. of a, a band. Song. As you said, you probably, mm-hmm. as Stacy said, she skipped it at first, but I think a lot of probably casual fans bought this album because they heard the hits mm-hmm. and they heard this song and it was something that they had probably never heard before right. and either they were turned off by it or you were like us and you said, I want more of that. Yeah, yeah I think Tony Banks said at some point in one of these interviews that they can't help but you know write longer songs. They write the pop songs, three-minute, mm-hmm. four-minute songs, but then they can't help 
you know, right. writing 10 minutes songs like Domino. I think it's something if you're a musician, you that's you, you want to expand it sooner or later yeah. the format and, and, and try something new and different. And they were the thing is, they were always good and have always been yeah. good at those longer songs. Definitely. Well, let's move on to throwing it all away. Throwing it all away. D-delay, anyone? studio version but we will allow that so this is the song that for me dropped down to lowest on the album instead of in too deep uh i i think while i i think the song is fine it's not bad but to me it just echoes too much of follow you follow me it's it's another kind of guitar riff driven song mid-tempo kind of a i I won't i'll call it love song for shorthand uh but it's I think Follow You, Follow Me did the same thing better. And so, although it has the, the, the I think the Hula Light Up, Light Up the Darkness, Hula Hold Your Hand lyrics in the middle are fantastic, but that's not enough to kind of raise it above the bar of In Too Deep for me. It's my favorite song on the album. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, we keep on having, we're, we're at, uh, we're at loggerheads. With- and there's a good reason for that. It okay. was, I was, um, it, again, it's a, it's a slightly more personal one, but I spent my, uh, the, the, the months after it was released, uh, anticipating the tour, mm-hmm. debating whether or not I'd go see Genesis. Okay. And, uh, I happened to be watching Genesis live on television. They were on and they were playing live in Montreux mm-hmm. and they, they did a very short set, as far as I was aware, but this was one of the tracks oh, that okay. uh, that they played. And much like we, as we were discussing with Domino, it was a very different experience seeing them play it live. And all of a sudden, I just got a sense that, yeah, they're probably going to be worth checking out. Mm-hmm, sure. And so as a result, I have this song to thank for, for right. me going down to Wembley. And uh, as a result, it's always had a very special place in okay. my heart. I, I'm not going to defend it, you know, to say that this is the, one of the best things they've ever done. It's not, but it's my favorite track on the album. I, I will say that I, I can't explain it because it, it kind of doesn't make sense, but I love 
this track. It's a simple verse chorus, verse chorus, mm-hmm. and that's it. It's done. So it's a very simple song. But I don't know what it is. Maybe it's Phil singing back up on himself, like kind of like he's got that double voice singing. Oh yeah, that "Who Will Let Up the Darkness." Right, oh, and then there's beautiful. I don't know if it's, a, I love that part of the song. if it's the cadence yeah. or the words, the way they they go up and they go down, and it's and then it comes back up. Mm-hmm. It's a not a happy song, but it's a happy melody. Mm-hmm. It's a song about I think we're losing this part of our relationship. I, I, maybe I listened to the song when I was breaking up with someone, or they were breaking with <laughs> with me. I don't know. But it's about we're just throwing what we have away. Can, what can I do? I, I've done all I could. And at the end, he kind of accepts it and says, I'm going to move on and I'm going to be fine. When he says, uh, late at night, when you call my name, the only sound you'll hear is a sound of your voice calling, calling after me. That is like, all right, I'm done. I'm moving on. It's going to be a happy life. D.A. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of those songs that I love the, ver- the, the album version, but the live version is kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. When 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 the Deagle A, I just wanna like I wanna lunge at Phil and go stop. And <laughs> I think Stacy and Dom were talking about either Domino or Home by the Sea for 2007. I was thinking it's either Follow You, Follow Me, or Throwing It All Away. I was surprised they did both. Because again, it's two similar songs that, you know, if you're going to if you're going to do one in the set list, I don't think I didn't think you would do the other. And so when they did both, I was kind of like, oh, all right. Although Tom did get up on on the camera for uh, yes. Madison Square Madison Square Garden during that song in 2007, they would show different people in the audience up on the big screen, and they showed my wife and I up on there. Yeah. I think because she was wearing a, a Genesis Mama Tour T-shirt. So she caught the cameraman's eye, and we did our little wave, yeah. and so that was our moment of Genesis glory. Yeah. I went to six shows. I didn't get any screen time, <laughs> probably because I. <laughs> this, you know, I was talking early, you know, at the beginning of the podcast about how special this album is to me. This song, even though it's not really my favorite mm-hmm. on the album, it has a very special place in my musical heart. So after I got in the album and I was like all about Genesis all the time, I remember my mom took me to the Cherry Hill Mall and we went to one of those music stores. I think at the time, I guess it was The Wall or Sam Goody, so one of those places. And I bought the black and white poster of the three of them with the orange Genesis at the top. I think it's like the one of the uh, images on the inside cover of the album. And I went over to look at to see if there was anything else by Genesis I could buy. And I found a single, the, uh, the single throwing it all away. And I picked it up and I turned it over and I saw there was a song on there, Do the Neurotic, that wasn't on the album I had. And I was like, I need to buy this That's now. Yeah. So I scraped, you know, I guess I had some extra lunch money left over or some allowance and I bought that. And that was my, that was the start of me becoming a record collector <laughs> at the tender age of seven. <laughs> and then I, I ended up buying all the other singles so I could get that extra track. Like I was like, this was like, treasure hunt you know finding treasure absolutely so that's why i love the throwing away i still have that that 45 um and it's yeah it is very cool and like i said it's not my favorite on the on the album but But it's emotional absolutely it reminds me of the simpler times of of getting into music i guess (laughs) (laughs) you just did it because you liked it so very cool all right we now move on to the closer on the album the brazilian
So the Brazilian final track on the album. Thoughts? I don't like the lyrics. Boom. <laughs> oh, neither do I. I, I think it, it could have been a hit. I think oh, it could have charted because around that time in the late mid mid eighties, you had other instrumental tracks which were getting some traction. You had Harold Faltemeyer was doing a ton of stuff oh, which was getting yeah. played. You had Axel F from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Jan Hammer. Yeah, Jan yeah, Hammer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami Vice theme. You had yeah. Harold Faltemeyer again with the theme from Top Gun, which was huge. And it was featured in an episode of Magnum PI. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, it was used in the movie When the Wind Blows. There you go. But yeah, I, I think I love the music on this. I love Phil's kind of electro, electronic drum riff that he uses. Uh, Tony's keyboards are so 80s and out there and kind of up front. Yeah, this is, to me, the Tony Bank. It's a Tony Bank song. Yeah. Oh, it's, exactly. <laughs> just like In Too Deep was a Phil Collins song, yeah, yeah. the Brazilian is a Tony Bank song. Right. This song is, is much more similar to the, to the kind of stuff that... Uh, Tony Banks did on his solo stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you like that, you should go and buy those. Yeah. Which nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> and but that was actually kind of a setup from there's the Visible Touch Tour documentary where where Tony is talking about the Brazilian and, he, and he's saying, he's like, oh, the Brazilian, it's an instrumental. It's all what, like what I do on my solo albums and you should go buy them. Which nobody does. <laughs> and, he kind of, and he kind of laughs, he realizes it himself. So it's really good. It's a fine moment there. And it, but, and it is true because you know he has a lot of great solo stuff i actually just got his a tour too far box and you know it's four cds of tony banks stuff and it's really good you know people it's he just didn't because he wasn't a front man he didn't get that kind of you know oomph that somebody like phil or even mike who was able to get front men to kind of sing his stuff for him uh, and Tony did later on also. It just it just never clicked for him solo-wise with, with sales. I genuinely believe that throughout all eras of Genesis, Tony Banks was the engine room yes. for the entire band. Yes. Oh, yeah. I agree with what Phil Collins said. That, that band does not exist without Tony no, Banks. And Phil actually said on one of these, one of the reissue interviews for one of the older albums, he said, you know, he said like, you know, Peter would have some ideas. Mike would come in with ideas. Steve would have some ideas. He said I would have a few. He's like, Tony would have hundreds of ideas. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, when you see Tony Banks, especially when they started crediting everything individually, you'd see Tony Banks, Tony Banks, Tony Banks, like on, you know, uh, on Trick to the Tail. Because he was able to produce so much at such a quality that not only quantity, but quality, that... You know, it was kind of like, oh, I could see why Steve, you know, in 76, 77 might have felt a bit, you know, pushed out because of that. But yeah, Tony was the engine room of the the creator of a lot of the music there. And I think that, you know, he and Mike in later years were, you know, the music people were there with Phil contributing, obviously, in some ways. But I think that that's where a lot of this music came from, from Tony's mind. Because, yeah, if, if Tony had left, that would be a very different band. You know, if somebody is the engine... I like that metaphor of the engine room. You know, that's he's the person who is driving this... He, who's giving the vehicle its forward momentum. Yes. So, 
Yeah. And the Brazilian is, is a classic example yeah. of, of Tony Banks writing. Really. Yeah, right. I, I agree 100%. So I think it's fantastic. I I turn it up when it plays yeah, because it, it's really cool loud. And, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's an electronic kitchen sink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it is meant to be played loud. Yes. And I could and I could see why this made the album versus Do the Neurotic. Where yeah. you know, we'll talk a little bit about about yeah. that later on. Yeah. But you know, Sounds it's different. it's something that's really solid there. So I, I prefer I, I love what they did live and I know Mike, you like full stops yes. in songs. Full stops. <laughs> 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 we'll give him a minute. But uh I I'd like that when a band does it when they start a song and they have certain people playing instruments and then someone else will join and another person will walk mm-hmm. on it and it builds up uh, they do this where if it's just starting out with Phil and Tony mm-hmm. uh, then Daryl comes on yeah. then I think for the first chorus Chester joins in and Mike doesn't walk on to like two minutes two and a half minutes yeah. into the song so finally comes on with that little guitar strumming and then they all close it out together which I thought was awesome and it also actually has one of my favourite uh, my Rutherford guitar solos sure. at the very end of it very I think it's fitting. a really good guitar yeah solo. I agree And now since we finished up with the album itself, there were three bonus tracks that were finished during the sessions that were not on the album proper. They were on B-sides or, you know, box sets later on. Do the Neurotic, I'd Rather Be You, and Feeding the Fire. And so we're going to talk about Do the Neurotic first. I agree that the Brazilian probably uh, mm-hmm. deserved it, its place as the instrumental on the main right. part of the album. But my God, this is a really good instrumental track. This is every bit, in my opinion, the equal of, of Inside and Out. Okay. I think it's it's not as cohesive and instrumental to me as something like the Brazilian is. Like, like Do the Neurotic to me feels like they had a lot of cool bits and they put them all together and it was cool yeah. to be all together. Yeah. It was neurotic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's and so it was fitting in that respect. But I think, you know, if you come down to the Brazilian, which seems to build to something, and Do the Neurotic, which goes crazy for five minutes and then kind of just ends, I was like, I could see why they chose, you know, what they chose. So, yeah, I think there's lots of bits in Do the Neurotic that, you know, the dun, 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 you know, there's keyboards and drums going and 
uh, Mike's playing is great throughout it, so I think it's it's really solid. I I I agree it's with great Simon. Playing by the three of them, yeah, and yeah. not using electronic drums, which is nice yeah. too. Um, yeah, I, I really love this. When I was, you know, as I said earlier, um, I got this as a the B side yeah. to throwing it all away, and I yeah. put this on, and I was just blown away. As a as a little kid, were you oh, just yeah. like, oh, this is yeah. great? Yeah, okay. and and again, I I wanted to be a drummer so oh, bad. Yeah. Um, when I first got into Phil Collins. And mm. so this, to me, was, like, unbelievable. Yeah. I would air drum as best I could to this every time I heard it. Still do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of found it by accident, like like you did, Stacey, mm. when, you, when you bought the singles. I wasn't really a single buyer. Sure. Like, I would buy the cassette or get it from Columbia Record House. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I wasn't aware of Do the Neurotic at all, whereas as someone like Stacey was. But I bought the Invisible Touch tour dvd from wembley so i got through the whole thing it's at the very end and at the credits this music starts playing i'm like what the hell is this right and all of a sudden i'm like the credits go by and says do the neurotic phil mike i'm like what the hell is this song (laughs) so finally i don't even know where i got it but i think it was probably even a year or two after that that i finally was able to get a copy of it somewhere it was like one of those hidden gems you're like oh my god it's christmas (laughs) right i can hear this all the way it's great it, yeah, again, I, I agree. It's, it reminds me of, uh, especially towards the, the end of the piece, uh, to in that quiet earth, a little bit here and there. But um, but I wasn't aware at the time of this song because I bought this, the cassette, <laughs> and that was that was all. I think I I came across this song, this piece, probably a few years ago. <laughs> Do you ever feel a bit shortchanged that sort of like you didn't have that sort of direct access to a lot of the music? Sort of? Right, yeah. I, I yeah. don't think I, I bought this uh, when I was in, in Argentina. I just came across this. Probably in the UK, I, bought, I might have bought the, the single, the the CD single of Into Deep with, you know. With, mm-hmm. You find it when you, yeah, when you can, yeah, right? Yeah. So. The interesting about this thing about this track is that when I got Calling All Stations, and it, it, it was either on that album or one of the B-sides from Calling All Stations. There's a bit where uh, Ray sings a lyric where he goes, dun, 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 And I'm thinking to myself, where do I know that from? I know that. And it was bugging me. And so finally one day I was re-listening to Dune Erotic. I'm like, that's where that's from. And I can't think of the Calling All Stations song, but I'm going to go listen to that all. I think it sounds familiar. It might be One Man's Fool, but it could be a B-side. It sounds I think more it like is a B-side, one, I think. I don't think it's One Man's Fool. Isn't there a... Uh, it's been probably, what? When did the album come out? That was the last time I heard it. 98, so. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of keyboard parts in that and guitar parts that I just... You know, it's it, it makes me happy when I hear it. So, yes, yeah. Upbeat is an understatement. Exactly. So, well, the next uh, the track, uh, vocal track, I'd Rather Be You. Could I 
it's Phil's kind of Motown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can do the Carlton dance to it from yeah. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah. <laughs> can we get yeah. that on video? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, if only someone would do a mashup of that. <laughs> oh, there you go. I see light bulbs above somebody's head. Sorry, YouTube. <laughs> exactly. I think it's 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 a happy little song. I could see why it's not on the album. It, it is it is lightweight, and that's fine for what it is. But I it it really doesn't fit with the rest of the album. The one thing I didn't notice about re-listening to it because it was another one that I skipped it was yeah. too upbeat it was very Phil's kind of buster soundtracky kind of mm-hmm. arena but if you do listen to it on headphones there's a lot going on in that oh. song like there's a lot of in- instrumentation and, and noise effects and Tony's doing this stuff yeah. so if you listen to that you're like wow I, I didn't realize the song was as complex right. as it appears just from the the beat and the melody yeah. uh, overall you could say that's a, a feature of later era genesis whereas all of the complexity was up front during the earlier eras but the later eras it's much more subtly placed right. so. cool well and then the the one that a lot of people say should have been on the album but wasn't is feeding the fire Track. I mean, I, yeah. To be honest with you, I, it would have been a good album track, but but the fact that it wasn't that doesn't bother me. Yeah, I think same here. I think it's you know everybody says oh it should have replaced something on the album, but everybody thinks that thing should replace somebody thinks it should replace a different song. And I mean, Invisible that speaks volumes, album. doesn't it? it? Yeah, no one can agree on it. It's not just like oh kick out in too deep, you know. It's like or you know whatever. It's 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 really good, but I, it does feel a little unfinished to me. Like, there's parts to it that, you know, I think are very cool, but it just needed something else to kind of push it over the edge. A similar song in feel is actually a Tony Banks solo track called Lion of Symmetry, uh, with Toya singing on it, where it's a darker, slower song, and that does that type of song so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, although one of the, back, back in the day when this was out afterwards, I was in a high school band, and I did rip off part of this song for one of the first things I wrote for the band. So, you know, I was just like, nobody will hear this. I'll just borrow this kind of sound <laughs> for it. So song. yeah, a Genesis B-side, I can kind of use that chorus progression for that. So, 
you know, but it was, it, it is what it is. Uh, sorry, Tony, if you're listening to this. I stole your music. Yeah, Phil's, uh, the, uh, Phil's vocals on this track are all over the place. This is like, he's super shouty. Yeah. Then he's like super falsetto. Yeah, that's the moody uh, part. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I it, it is a very intense track compared yeah. to the other tracks on Invisible Touch. I can see how maybe it didn't fit the overall vibe of the album. It's a song that if it had been expanded could have been one of the launch songs on the album and probably would have been really cool that way. But it just, it's its a B-side, you know? It's what it comes down to. I think they're, the B-sides are a decent quality here, especially Neurotic and Feeding the Fire. You know, it's, and if this had come out in 91 instead of 86, you know, when they were putting out a 70-minute long album like uh, like We Can't Dance, these three tracks probably would have made the album. So. And he's singing about people getting roasted, yes. which... I don't know. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, jump into our favorite track from the album, and then we'll talk about Tom's web poll. I put Domino for my favorite track, just right. because it kind of represents the Genesis spirit, the, kind of a longer song. It goes through many different uh, styles, uh, like some of the lyrics that Tony has, and it's fantastic live. Me too, Domino. I go for Domino. Oh, again, Tom. Oh. Young song, you know. I agree. I feel some yeah. sort of strange communication going on here. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite track from this album rotates, like I said earlier, <laughs> uh, on a continual basis. But I, I tend to go back to Tonight, Tonight, Tonight more often okay. than not. And uh, so if I was... Um, pressed to pick a favorite overall that's the one i would go to uh, i think it holds up the most on the album it still sounds good today like it's very 80s you know yeah. i'm not gonna make any bones about it um but this still uh, i think holds up now more than anything else in the album um and i just like i said that that end part with the build-up um is just one of their finest moments on record for me and all i have to say is ditto I voted for this, and it's it's my favorite track on the album, but for all the same reasons. Oh, okay. Um, I I have to, in some ways, recuse myself from uh, <laughs> from this album because I I genuinely do believe that uh, this was one of the creative low points mm-hmm. in their career. Um, that said, Domino, great track, mm-hmm. really good track. Um, but we're not we're talking about our favorite track, not the mm-hmm. best track. Sure, sure. The best track on this album is Domino. My favorite track is Throwing It All Away. Very good. So hearing us talk about this for the past you know, hour or so, however long it's been, have you re-examined anything mentally about this album? or Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just that had to check in. You know? I have a lifetime of, of right. changing his so, mind. All right. <laughs> all right, Tom, let's get your poll out on the table here. I'm invisible touching my pole right now. And I have to say that it was... It's a little in too deep, I think. That's what she said. So I throw everything away and start all over again. Brazilian. Brazilian. (laughs) By an overwhelming majority, almost 50% of voters chose Domino as their favorite song. Not surprised. Uh, And then with the second place was a very close race, uh, but... The second place got ahead by one vote. That okay. was Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. All right. Followed very closely by Land of Confusion. Okay. Uh, then it was a tie for fourth place mm-hmm. between Throwing It All Away and The Brazilian. All right. 
And then after that was Into Deep. Mm-hmm. Second to last was, last was Anything She Does. And with two votes was Invisible Touch. Oh. Which yeah. I, I was hoping would get a little bit more just because of yeah. what the track means. Yeah. But I understand why I got only two votes. Sure. We know that we know the, the people who listen to Genesis podcasts, yes. I think. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, excellent. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really am happy that uh, that we talked about this album. We hope you enjoyed it. We're going to come back uh, with some new album conversations soon. And please keep listening. We hope you keep enjoying this show and tell your friends about this who love this music. So thank you very much. This is Mike Lord signing off. This is Elena Tengar. This is Simon Godfrey. Stacey Godfrey. And Tom Roche. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.